your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. this morning and we are starting a new series. I've got a question for y'all and this is this is a taboo subject in old Baptist churches so we're going to have to be honest with ourselves. When you guys were younger, some of you that wasn't very long ago and for some of us you may not remember what younger was. When you were younger was there a a a general hot new dance that was out that you knew how to do. Anybody remember that? Oh, some of you are smiling and laughing, and some of you are saying, I would never dance. That was horrible. When I was in fourth grade, it was the Macarena. Do you guys remember that? We did that in fourth grade PE class, The this stuff right here. Some of you, if you go back far enough, I'm sure I've seen the videos of all the different dance moves that come through the decades that, that people did. Some of you, I'm sure, could do those. I never could dance. If you've heard me sing, my dancing is worse, and that gives you how bad of an ideal it is. But when we were in school, there was something called the cha-cha slide. That was really easy. It's to the left, to the left, to the left, and that was the whole dance move. Now, what I found is that every generation of youth kind of comes up with their new dance move of some type. And now that we have um, social media and the Internet, these kids are coming up with a new one every year. Most of you know I've spent nearly the past decade of mine around junior high kids, teenagers, and, and they're a very weird creation. They're always coming up with something new. And these kids have a new social media platform called TikTok. Now, I'm not saying to get on that. I think it's something to be cautious of like everything else. But one of the main things on this new social media platform that kids do is somebody will come up with a dance move and they'll video record themselves doing it for about 15 seconds and then they put it out there and all these kids will copy it and they'll go through a long process of trying to learn these dance moves so they can record themselves making the exact same video and put it out there and everybody can tell them how good they are at it. It's a little odd. I don't quite get it. But what I found is that as these kids have learned these little 15 second dance routines, they've started to get this weird tick when they walk down the hallway at school. Anytime their minds are empty and they're doing nothing, they'll be walking down the school with their friends' backpacks on, and you'll see them. It's like it just comes over them all of a sudden. They're doing this number right here, doing, doing weird stuff. And then they'll talk to their friends, and then they'll do it again and again and again. And I'll be looking at them because I think they're weird. And they'll be doing this, and they'll go, what's up, coach? And then they'll just keep going by. I've got this one girl in class that she does it so much, she does it in the middle of a test. She'll be taking a test or taking notes or something, and she's very quiet about it, but you'll watch her. She'll, she'll write down an answer, and then she'll start doing this number right here and read the next question, and then she'll do it again. And what I've realized about these kids is that it's not taking any effort or any focus to do this. It just They've done it so much, it's just become a habit and muscle memory, and it just happens to them. I don't think they even know they're doing it half the time. That one girl I have at class, I'll be like, Ava, stop. Oh, sorry. And then she'll focus for about 30 seconds. The next thing I know, I'll look up and guess what she's doing? All this stuff again. Now, with that, I kind of wonder, what things, if you can learn those dance moves and go through them without even thinking about it, what other things do we as a society and a culture do without thinking? It just kind of happens to us. I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I check this phone about 90 times a minute. I'll, I'll pull it out and I'll look at the time and I'll put it back in my pocket. And I look at the time, and I put it back in my pocket, and I, I don't even know what time it is. If you ask me what time, I don't know. It's just a habit I get through. Uh, sometimes when you drive, you can get into a habit. When I was dating Jessica, she lived in Searcy, and from my house, you had to go down to the highway and take a right to go to Searcy. 
And the other six days of the week, I took a left and I went to work or came to church. Well, one time I was going to see Jessica. It was a Friday night. I was all excited. I went down to the end of the road and I took a left. And I drove all the way to this church building before I realized I wasn't coming to church. I was supposed to go by seeing Jessica. It kind of scared me that I could drive a truck that far without even thinking about where I was going. Sometimes we go through the motions when we get in a habit of doing something and we do it without even thinking. I wonder if we do that in the way that we practice our faith in Jesus Christ. Is it possible that as individuals we get to where we go through the motions? I pray the same prayer every night. I get up and go to church on Sunday morning. I read my Bible, but I can't even remember what I read. I just do the action. But it doesn't come from a heart of focus or a heart of purpose. Is it possible that we as a church collectively sometimes go through the motions? We open the doors and we have church. Brother Danny, great song service. Brother Brian, good sermon. It was so good to see you, Brother Robert. I really enjoyed everybody. And then we go home, but we haven't been transformed or changed at all when we come here. This sermon series called Through the Motions, we're going to kind of assess, are we going through the motions and how does Jesus Christ view that? And, and what is it that we can do to get a little bit better at maybe focusing on what God's called us to do. Now, if you're sitting here and this convicts you a little bit, and you say, Brian, I'd, I'd go through the motions. Or maybe we look at ourselves as a church and say, we go through the motions. I've, I've got some good news for you. Number one, you're not alone. I, I think everybody in this room at some point just kind of puts it on autopilot. You guys know what autopilot is, right? You push the button and it just, it just happens. And I think that, including myself, I think we all do that. I, I know for a fact that even as a pastor, I do that. The, the second bit of good news is that this is not new to Christians. The Bible is riddled with exa examples of people just going through the motions, just, just doing the actions, and, and it really addresses that. So it's not something that just we struggle with. And the third thing is, is that it's never too late to quit going through the motions and really put focus and effort into things. We're going to be in Matthew 21. I want to look at a place where the Bible starts to address this. The next couple of chapters, God and the Bible really addresses people that are going through the motions back in Jesus' time. So verse, or chapter 21, verses 12 through 24. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables and the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. So this is telling a story in the middle of what we call Jesus' earthly ministry. And all Jesus' earthly ministry is, is he is, a, for about three years before the crucifixion, he is walking around, he is gathering disciples to himself, he is teaching to anybody who will listen, and he is showing that he is God by performing miracles. So as he goes around doing this, he is starting to gather some attention, both positive and negative. Now, as he goes around, he's really undoing the expectations of what the Messiah was. The, the Jews at this time, they expected a Messiah to, to ride in on a big white horse. He was going to be big and strong and handsome, and he was going to save them from the occupation of Rome, and he was going to change everything and make Israel one of the greatest countries in the world. And yet, here comes the Messiah, and he's a poor carpenter 
who walks everywhere, who has a ragtag band of the most undesirable people following him, listening to him, that he calls his students or his disciples. And he, and he talks about different things. They expected a Messiah was going to come in and he was going to affirm the actions of the day, what, what we call the law. And here Jesus comes in and he's talking about what, what's your heart like? And what's your relationship with God like? And, and what's your relationship with those around you like? And so society as a whole kind of rejected him because he wasn't what they expected. And during this early ministry, he walks in the temple and he goes there to pray and to worship. He's going to do some teaching a lot of times when he goes in the temple. And he sees something that it just upsets him. In the temple, there's an area called the Gentile court. Only Jews were allowed actually in the temple. But the Gentile court was a place where God provided that if you were not a Jew and you wanted to seek the one true God, you could come here and you could pray and this was your place that God had provided for you. But this place, because Gentiles were not loved and not respected, had been turned into a virtual marketplace. People had come there and they started to set up tables and there were money changers there. I don't know, how many of you have traveled out of the country? Let me see your hand. A few of us, okay. When, when you go out of the country and you get off the plane or you get off the ship or you drive across the Mexican border, what you will see almost immediately is a bunch of places and it almost looks like gas stations. And they have these money changer areas where you can come in and you can take your American money and you can change it to the currency of that particular country. Now, the reason they do that is not because they're so friendly and they just want to help you get along in their new country. They're actually shortchanging you a little bit so they can keep some of the profits for themselves. And here in the temple, as people traveled from all over the, at that time, the Middle East, the known world, to come to Jerusalem for different reasons, there were people in the temple who were money changers that would change your money around that would help you get the currency that you needed. And then there were people who were selling animals for sacrifice in the temple. So Jesus walks into this place and he sees a place that has been set aside for people to come seek God. And he sees people making money and profit and selling and buying here. You guys know the story. What was Jesus' reaction? He was not happy. He goes in here and he sees this and he is so upset, he makes for himself a whip and he runs through the Gentile court, flipping over tables, chasing animals and people out of there. It's one of the few places in the Bible where we see this part of, of Jesus Christ being passionate. Listen, this is the same Jesus Christ who was nailed to a cross. People mocked him and spit on him. They cheered while he suffered. He couldn't breathe. And his answer was not anger. He looked to the heaven and he said, Father, they don't understand what they're doing. Forgive them. Don't, don't, don't be upset with them. Don't be angry with them. They don't even know what this means. The same Jesus who could say that about the people who crucified him, he gets angry when he walks in the temple and he sees this going on. Why, why does this upset him so much more than everything else? He, he's a very passionate person. I think he healed with a passion. I think he loved with a passion. And I think that he was upset with a passion at this moment. So we need to look at who did he kick out of the temple. He didn't clear the whole temple out, just those in this court. And it tells us that two groups of people were cast out of here. The, the first group of people were those who sold. And that makes sense to me, right? The, the people that are coming in and, and they're trying to make a profit. They're, they're coming to a religious place. They're coming to God's, we would call it God's house. And they're coming there not because they want to worship. They're coming there not for anything else. They're coming there to make a profit. It, it makes sense that God would not want them there, right? But he also cast out those who sold. Or I'm sorry, it's those who bought. The people who came in and who were going into the marketplace and buying things. What was their fault? Why would Jesus cast them out? It, 
is it possible that they just kind of got caught up in the, the wrong area? Hey, somebody told me I could go buy an animal for sacrifice here. Somebody told me I could, I could have my money changed here, and they just ended up. But Jesus throws them out. To understand why Jesus didn't want them in there, we have to understand what's going on here. In the Old Testament, there's a, a sacrificial law laid out. Every sin requires a blood offering. And for you and me, we're so blessed. Jesus Christ shed his blood to be our sin offering. We, we don't have to worry about that anymore. But before Jesus Christ went to the cross, there was a sacrificial system where you had to purchase or raise an animal, take it to the temple for it to be slaughtered, for the blood to be drained, and for it to be burned. And that is how you gave a sin, or I'm, I'm sorry, an offering for your sin. And God is not, he, he doesn't overlook people in need. He had a system set up where not everybody had to offer the same thing. If you were a priest or you were rich, you, you might offer a young bull. That, that would be your offering. It would be something that would be really expensive. If you were middle class, it might have been a goat or a lamb. And, and for the very poor, all they had to do was buy a dove. And that could be the sacrifice for their sin offer. Well, in this scripture, the only thing that it mentions specifically about being sold in the temple is doves. And the reason that this is a big deal is not because people were coming to buy their doves, but the price of the doves in the temple was ridiculously high. Historians believe that it was somewhere between 18 to 19 times higher for the price of a dove than it was in a marketplace in Jerusalem. So that begs the question, if you are so poor that your sin sacrifice is a dove, why are you paying 18 to 19 times more for it than it's worth? And so what we have is we have a picture of people with maybe a lot of money coming to the temple. They're, they're buying the cheapest sacrifice they, or the smallest sacrifice they can get just to get it done. They're going through the motions. They're making sure their actions are done, but their heart is not right. See, the purpose of a sacrifice is not because God really desires to smell a, the burning flesh of an animal. It's supposed to hurt just a little bit when you buy something. It's supposed to be something that reminds you that my sin has a cost. Not that you're paying for your sin, but my sin has a cost. And it's a time for you to remember to repent of your sin. And we have people with, obviously, excess money to throw away coming and overpaying for an animal to sacrifice. Not because they have a repentant heart. Not because they're partaking in God's design. Because, hey, I need to sacrifice today, so I'll go get it taken care of real quick. Going through the motions. And Jesus, he sends them out of here. He says, we don't do that here. You guys can get out of here. We don't need you. He throws them out of there. And this brings us to our first take-home truth. If you're going to follow along with this up here on the screen, listen to this. Jesus is not interested in actions from an empty heart. Jesus is not interested in actions from an empty heart. He, he walks into this place and he sees that God's temple has been turned into a business. People are going through the motions. They're just getting through the day. And he says, that's not what this place is for. And he casts them out. He says, I don't want you in here anymore. And the Bible doesn't tell us if they come back or not. But Jesus made it very clear. The message is, you're not welcome here. Now, you might not understand how big of a deal this is, but imagine this. Imagine if you came to church this morning, and I, and I looked at you and I said, oh, you look tired. That's not your singing face, Miss Bobby. Uh, how about, what if, what if uh, you pay me $50 and I'll sit beside you and I will sing your worship for you and you won't have to do it? You don't have to worship. Your worship will still get given to God, but you don't have to do it. You can pay me to do it. 
And then after that's over, uh, my worship, my singing is not worth that kind of money, so you kind of regret that. After that's over, you, you, you look, I look over at you and I say, you know what? You don't really look like you're wanting to listen this morning. You, you, your mind is elsewhere. How about you pay me another $50 and, and I'll, I'll do that stupid little outline Brian came up with and you, and you don't have to do it. You still were at church. You still, somebody listened to the sermon for you, but you don't actually have to do it. Now, everybody in this room understands that that is not God's design for coming to church. That defeats the purpose. Why would you even come if you're not going to worship God, if you're not going to come here to learn and be transformed and change? But that's what's going on here at the temple. People are coming in and they're doing their best to just kind of do the actions and say, I have done my religious duty. Now, you and I, we would never pay somebody to worship for us. We would never pay somebody to take notes for us during a sermon. Or would we? What things in our lives do we just go through the motions with that we do, but we don't do with a purpose and with a heart of trying to learn and transform? When, when we read our Bibles, we don't understand what was there and we don't transform for it. When we come to church and we say, hey, it was so good to see you, Brother Danny, I enjoyed the worship, Brother Brian, good sermon, but we'll leave and we'll come back next week and nothing has changed. How often do you and I Go through the motions when we come to church just for the sake of being here. I just really believe that the scripture and what we're going to learn in this, it just spells out for us. Jesus is not interested in us doing that. If we come to church and we have no purpose, no passion, no heart for it, I'm not 100% sure that we even need to be here. And I'm not saying you're not welcome, but why would you waste your time coming here for no purpose, just for the actions, just to go through the motions. When Jesus drives these people out, he explains to them what he's doing. It tells us what he said. Jesus said, this is a house of prayer. This is a place where people come to seek God. This is a place of worship. And he said, you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus explains that he's upset because something in a place, in a time that is made for his worship is being used for the wrong purposes. And so that tells us something, that when we come to church and we go through the motions, we just do the actions without a heart. We do the actions without a purpose. We might think that's a victimless crime. Brian, what does it matter? It doesn't bother anybody else if I don't listen. It doesn't bother anybody else if I didn't come to worship. It doesn't bother anybody else if I just did this just because it's my habit. But look at this. Jesus tells them, the reason I'm upset with you is you are getting in the way of people who want to worship. And so that brings us to our second take-home truth up here on the screen if you're keeping up with it. It's, Jesus will not let our empty-hearted actions get in the way of true worship. Jesus will not let our empty-hearted actions get in the way of true worship. See, if, if we really dig into this, Jesus was probably upset they were making a profit, but that wasn't the biggest thing he was upset. He was upset they were going through the motions, but that's not the biggest reason. He was upset that people were doing it in such a way that it was keeping other people from getting to God. It was keeping other people from worshiping, and Jesus would not allow it. And it was true 2,000 years ago in the temple, and it's true today at Ramsey Heights. And this series is going to call us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, do I have empty-hearted actions that are keeping people away from true worship? Is there something I am doing, going through the motions, doing it because it's the Christian thing to do, saying the right words, dressing the right way, doing or not doing this or that, that it's just getting in the way of people actually coming to know God. Remember, this is in the Gentile court. This is a place made for people who weren't allowed in the temple to come.
So we have to ask ourselves this. If Jesus Christ walked in here, into this building today, and he had his whip and he was coming in here to turn over the tables, which one of us, which ones of us would be welcome to stay? And which ones of us would he drive out? Which one of us would he say, you have empty hearted actions and you're getting in the way of people truly learning and worshiping about God? He won't let us do it. But if you look at this, it tells us something. Jesus didn't just clear out the court because he wanted an empty building. He didn't just clear out the court because he didn't want those particular people there. He cleared out the court because he wanted to welcome somebody else in. Those who were going through the motions were not welcome, but those who were the outcasts of society, the blind, the lame, the poor, the beggars, those of the Jews said, you're not welcome here. Jesus throws out the people doing the actions to invite them into the church or into the temple. And so Jesus stands there, he, he heals, he teaches, the Bible tells us, the undesirables of the society. Because who he wants in his building and who he wants in Ramsey Heights is people who are here to truly seek God. People who are here to truly do what God has called us to. People who are here to truly be transformed by God's Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. That's who he wants in our buildings. Let's continue to read through this story. It's going to introduce some new characters to us. So read verses 15 through 17. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, talking about him healing and teaching, they, they see him healing blind people, people who can't walk, and the children crying in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. You know what that means? They were very upset. <laughs> they were bothered. And they said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. So Jesus is in the temple. He's doing amazing things. People with lifelong illnesses are coming to him. He, he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And the, the priest, the high priest, the chief priest, they come to him and they're upset. They're saying, what do you think you're doing in this temple? And who do you think you are? Now, let's introduce these characters that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. It gives us two of them today, and I'm going to add a couple more. Number one, it talks about the chief priests. And this, this is a group of people that were high up on the religious order. The chief priests would have been part of what is called the council or the Sanhedrin. And in, in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 high-ranking chief priests. And they were like the Supreme Court of Israel. They had the final say on religious issues. They had the final say on biblical and doctrinal issues. They had the final say on Old Testament law and what the uh, punishment was for somebody who broke the law. So these guys are the Jewish Supreme Court for, for all intents and purposes. And then you have the scribes, and the scribes are like uh, college professors. They are lifelong theologians. That Their whole purpose in life is to study the Bible and learn about it, to, to, ironically enough, to look forward to the upcoming Savior and to teach others. They were also um, so trusted with the Word of God that they were responsible for recording the Word of God. When, when it needed to be uh, re um, transfer. They didn't have a copy machine. So the scribes would do that. And then we're going to talk about two more groups of people in the coming weeks. One of them is called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a almost like a denomination within the Jews. They were sticklers for doing everything right. One of the things Jesus gets on to them for is that they were so interested in making sure they didn't eat anything unclean, they 
would strain their wine to make sure that there was no gnat in it because a gnat was an unclean animal and they couldn't even accidentally drink one. They dressed the right way. They had all of the answers. They, they were well respected because they lived the closest life, I think either before or since, the closest life to perfect that was possible when it comes to actions. And then we'll talk about the Sadducees. These are the people that worked for political influence. They were religious elites that they influenced the businesses around them. So what you have here is a bunch of people, and if you've heard of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you've heard about them in church, you're probably thinking, aha, I found the bad guys in the story. These are the bad guys. These are the people that will eventually be responsible for crucifying Jesus Christ. But to understand what the Bible tells us, we got to understand at this time, these were the religious elite. This was the Billy Graham, the Chuck Swindoll, the Charles Spurgeon, the Adrian Rogers, and the John MacArthur of the time. These were the religious elites that had all of the answers. They did everything right. They knew everything. They were the biblical authority. They were well-respected men of God at this time. If they're so respected men of God, why does the Bible continually put them in stark contrast between them and the Messiah they claim, or they, they claim to be excited for coming? Why, why did they fight with Jesus all of the time? Why would they be responsible for leading to his crucifixion? And why were they bothered at the miracles he was performing? Why did they reject Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus came in a package they didn't understand. They, they had an expectation of what they were looking for, and Jesus didn't fit it. When I was in college, many of my college stops that took about seven years, uh, the first college I went to was Arkansas Tech University. And me and my friends had got really involved in what is called campus life. At college, they realized we have a bunch of 18 to 22-year-old dummies. And if we don't do something to entertain them, they're going to find a lot of things to entertain themselves. So we had pool tournaments, and they would show movies. We had all kinds of things going on on a college campus. And my first spring in college, they had a giant scavenger hunt. Now, when I say a giant scavenger hunt, I don't mean they got 20 people in here and they said, hey, go find a picture of this hanging on the wall. Go find a walnut off a tree. They could put out a poem, each, uh, a poem, a part of a poem each day for a week. And this poem was supposed to lead you to almost like a, a X marks the spot treasure thing. And there was supposed to be a little piece of paper that says you win. And there was a rather large monetary prize attached to it. Now, we're co poor college freshmen. We have nothing to do. Guess what we're doing? We're going on the scavenger hunt, the week-long scavenger hunt, where they give us a new clue every single day. And we were so excited about it. But the problem was we were competing with hundreds, if not thousands, of other students at the school. Well, me and my buddy, we followed this. They sent out an email every morning with the new instructions, the new next part of the poem. You had to figure it out. It was very cryptic. And when we got the last bit of it, we traced it down and we thought we had it. We went out and we followed it. We walked around campus as it gave us uh, instructions and we figured out the poem led us to an obscure parking lot like overflow parking in the back of the college. And we thought if we're right, if we understand this right, we had figured out there's a parking spot and the clue or the, the prize is in the parking spot. And man, we were so excited. When we got to that parking lot, there was one car. Guess what parking spot it was in? the one that we thought that the clues were leading us to. Man, we ran over there. We went over the car. We checked the doors. It was locked. We looked in the gas tank. We're looking everywhere for this little envelope that says, congratulations, you won. And we were going to get some money. I don't know how long we stayed there. I, I even crawled under the car and started looking around. And all I found under the car was a bunch of pebbles and a little, like, uh, trash, tra chapstick tube down there. 
we finally gave up and we thought, man, this has to be wrong. And so we went back to the dorm and we went over the clues again and again and again. It kept bringing us back to that parking spot and we said, man, we've missed something. The next day we got an email that says the contest has been won and explained what all the clues went and we went down clue by clue and we had this one right and we had this one right until the clues told us that in the back of the college there's an obscure parking lot and in that parking lot there's a parking space and that parking space is the answer. We had it right the whole time. And then it told us the little piece of paper that says you won is rolled up and put in an old chapstick tube laying under the car. I was within arm's reach of finding the answer, but because I was not expecting it to look like that, I missed it. And we're, we, here we have the chief priests who are looking for the Messiah. They're within arm's reach of him, but they said, I don't think it's supposed to look like that, and so he can't be the Messiah. And so they rejected him, and the Bible puts him in stark contrast to them. They're looking for a Messiah that was going to come in and he was going to affirm their actions. He was going to tell them how holy you are. Look at how good you are at following the rules. Look at how much you have done for this temple. Look at how holy you are with the way that you dress and the way that you speak and the days that you spend here. They were expecting a Messiah that was going to come and say congratulations. But they got a Messiah that came in and said your actions mean nothing to me. I want to look into your heart. That's the Messiah that you and I serve, is a Savior that comes and says, I'm not so worried about your actions, I'm worried about the heart that they come out of. And when we come to this church, we have to be concerned about the heart that we're going through. Because they were not expecting this Messiah, because they rejected a message of heart-based actions instead of just going through the motions, they missed the work of the Messiah. Can you imagine, one day we'll get to see it, getting to stand in a room with Jesus and watching someone who has been blind all of their life walk up to him and have their eyes healed. Somebody who can't walk being carried to him and watching them stand up and take their bed with them and walk out praising God. Can you imagine being in that moment? What would you give to be with Jesus when he did that? And here the chief priests were and they missed it. They were within reach. They missed it because they rejected heart for actions. That tells us our third take-home truth. Only going through the motions will cause you to miss the work of Jesus. Only going through the motions will cause you to miss the work of Jesus. It's a sad thing to think about that we could possibly do that. See, these religious elite are mentioned again and again and again and again in the Bible. And I've often wondered that if they're the enemy, if they're the bad guys, if they had it wrong, why do we taught so much about them, about the way that they acted, about the way that they dressed, about their thoughts? And sometime way back it hit me. The reason that these people are put in the Bible is because God looked at us and he knew that we would have the exact same ability to go through the motions, to focus on actions, and do it from an empty heart. And so he put an example in the Bible of what you and I look like when we don't follow him with a purpose and with a passion. See, we can be guilty of being very biblically knowledgeable. We know the answers. We can be guilty of acting holy. We, we can be guilty of doing all the things that we're told makes us a good Christian and still have our heart wrong. And so we can be just like the chief priest. And if we are like that as a church, and if we're like that as individuals, we are going to miss the blessings of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is a choice. I'm going to put it out there this way. You can be a religious elite, or you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't be both. 
It comes from the heart, not from actions. Now, this may sound like I'm, I'm trying to preach at you. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I'm not. Guys, my prayer all week has been, God, I know I'm a Pharisee. I know that my desires and my actions and my habits get in the way of your work here. But I think if we look in the mirror, I think it's all of us. And so I'm offering you the opportunity to hold me accountable for that, just as I'm going to hold you accountable and we're going to hold each other accountable. Because what we want as a church is we don't want to open the doors and just be here and go home. We want to see Jesus Christ work here. We want to see his healing power on sinful souls walk in here and people be changed. I want to see people come to this altar as a sinner and leave here justified before Christ. I want to see that baptistry used every single week. I want to see people come into this church not knowing anything about God and be trained up by people who believe that we work for a purpose and a passion, that we have a mission given given to us from God. But before we can get to that point, we're going to have to, every single time we walk here, walk in here, do it from a heart, not from habits, not from actions. Brother Danny, I'm going to ask us this morning to look in a mirror. As individuals, as, <clears throat> as individuals and as a church, is there something we've been going through the motions with where it's just become a habit? It doesn't really mean anything. We just do it because it's all we know to do. And this is our time to give that to God and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to live with a purpose and a passion. This is a time where we invite you to do that. Would you please stand?